0: This is a photo of the cross on top of our new building that we are just over a month away from a move in on. Come on. All right. I can go with that. And uh, notice that it has a circle behind it. FYI, if you're not sure on the meaning of that, the cross is symbolic for the cross, and the circle is symbolic for the resurrection, as in the stone that was in front of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, which is um, a gift, a pet peeve of mine, not to go on a side rant, but to go on a side rant, is the way that in Western thought often even theologians emphasize the cross over the resurrection, and that has all sorts of far-reaching implications. So I'm very happy that our new building has impeccable theology. Well, (laughs) well done, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Architect. But while the circle is less common, the cross on top of a church motif is ubiquitous, all across not only the Western world, but the world in general. At the center of Christian spirituality is an evocative image of the cross. But over the centuries, the image has become far too sentimental. It's been turned into an architectural feature or a church logo or an item of jewelry. That is not a passive aggressive dig at any of you wearing a cross right now. Um, Apparently, in particular, if you're a dude, a cross earring is very on trend right now. (laughs) Well done. It's just a way of saying that in the first century, nobody would have dared turn the cross into a fashion item. One, because it was just grotesque at its level of violence, and two, because it's an honor-shame culture, which we are fast becoming via social media. And in that honor-shame paradigm, it was the ultimate shame-based way to die. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal to kill you that way. It was reserved for the dregs of society, a slave or a traitor or a, a, a deep hatred for an enemy. And so you really would not even talk about it. I grew up in a church, and this is not a critique at all, but where at least once a year, the pastor would give a kind of really gory, imaginative Mel Gibson style monologue on like the violence of the cross. Again, not a, it's not a slam at all, but the gospel writers don't do that. They literally just write one line, and they crucified him. It's almost as if they can't come to actually describe it in detail, Similar to the emotion that we have, and it's a right and fitting emotion in our culture around sexual assault, I would never give an in-depth portrayal of that to elicit emotion from you. It's way too tender. In the same or similar way, the cross, at least in the ancient Mediterranean, was what we would call an emotional trigger for people because of its violence and its shame. And the cross is a symbol for death and death to self. Now, let's just be honest to kick off our night together. Hi, welcome to church. Let's talk about death to self. (laughs) The idea of death to self is at best alien in our Western culture. I mean, we were raised on a steady diet of, I don't know, one, Woody Allen's kind of the heart wants what it wants and the postmodern propaganda, be true to yourself and the kind of yogi, speak your truth mantra that we hear all the time in our city. Then two, most of us were raised on technology and scientists tell us that in particular digital technology like your phone and the app on your phone, it rewires the human brain to expect instant gratification, to expect, like literally rewires your brain to expect to get what you want right when you want it, click buy it now, and the next morning you wake up and there it is on your doorstep or apartment window or whatever it is, and to rewire your brain to feel more in control of your environment than you actually are. And then we go out into the non-digital world, also known as the real world, and, Like, nothing is fast and easy, and people don't, like, do exactly what we say right away and when we want it, and soul formation even is slow and laborious, and we have very little control. Then third, add on top of that a little, like, just Freudian therapeutic worldview, like, if you're at all familiar with Freud and his massive influence on the West and how he taught that all neurosis is the base, basis of desire that has yet to come true, and, and it's either blocked from an external source or what he would call oppression or an internal source, what we would call repression. And that's like the, prob- the the root issue of all of our problems, which by the way, we don't think that is true. But a lot of people take that as assumption in the West, put all of that together into kind of the mishmash that is Western culture. And we end up in a worldview where the ultimate sin is to not follow our heart. I mean, how many films or novels or about somebody who has the, quote, courage to walk out of a marriage or whatever the example is, to follow the heart. In the kind of culture that most of us grew up in, the idea of death to self sounds at best weird and at worst downright dangerous. I think of the line from the sociologist, Robert Bala from Berkeley, who, if you know anything about him, he was an expert on Freud's influence on Western individualism. He writes, quote, we have been led to believe that the self is sacrosanct. Just as in an earlier time, it was thought never fitting to deny God, now it seems never right to deny oneself. We are the new God, or we think we are. So for many of us who follow Jesus, but in a Western kind of, we grew up in the Western culture, we're used to the idea of Jesus dying for us, but many of us, in all honesty, still can't fathom the idea of us dying with him. So in a cultural moment of you know, Uber Eats on your phone, 10 minutes later, dinner, and a therapeutic culture where everything's about self-actualization and all of that, what could this ancient violent image of the cross possibly have to say for your life and for mine? Well, let's work through the text line by line. We left off last week in verse 20 with the story. If you missed it, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast. It is the fulcrum point in Matthew's gospel. Literally, it is the before. If you read a commentary, it's before part one and part two, right here between verse 20 and verse 21. Now, we left off with this realization that Simon and the 12 come to that Jesus is more than just a rabbi or even a prophet. He is, quote, the Messiah and the son of the living God. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the follow-up story. If you're Simon, you're a first century Jew, Torah observant kind of Jew, and you come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, then most likely what you assume is about to happen next is, well, the first thing you need to do is clear out any kind of would-be messiahs or other rulers in Jerusalem around the world. So we need to get rid of Caesar in the Roman empire. We need to get rid of Herod the Great down in Jerusalem. We need to get rid of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish high court at the Temple Mount, which is all corrupt and complicit with the empire. And so the way you do that is pretty straightforward. You march south to Jerusalem from the Galilee. You rally an army en route. You fast and pray and trust God. You launch a surprise attack on the Roman garrison in Jerusalem. You slaughter everybody, you take over the Temple Mount, you kill off any and all opposition, and you install Jesus as the Messiah. And then you trust God for what happens later with Rome. And if you know your Jewish history, that's exactly what happened a century before with the Maccabees, for the most part. And it's exactly what happened a century later with Bar Kokhba. In fact, that was the end cause of when Jerusalem was no longer. But what Jesus has in mind is literally the exact opposite of what Simon and the 12 most likely expect to happen next. Hence the line 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. At the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the Torah that together made up the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court and that he must be killed, not killed, but be killed, and on the third day, then be raised to life. Now, if you're Simon, you're thinking, say what? (laughs) Right? That opening line from that time on, there is a shift now to the end of Matthew's gospel, not only in geography, where before Verse 21, everything for the most part is up in the north and the Galilee, and now everything for the most part is down in Judea and Jerusalem to the south, but not only a shift in geography, also a shift in strategy from teaching the crowds in an oblique way that he is the Messiah to teaching the 12 what kind of Messiah he is. Jesus' next step, yes, is to go to Jerusalem and face the Sanhedrin and the Roman Empire, but not to kill, to be killed. Not to conquer, not to take life in war, but to give his own life in self-sacrificial love. Now, that, that was not a category for a Simon. The idea of a crucified Messiah in first century Jewish thought was an oxymoron. It would be like saying a pacifist general. Or, uh, or, uh, or a defeated victor. It does not make any sense, hence the next line, 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Hey, Jesus, like, just a minute, like that last part. Let me give you a little coaching, just <laughs> PR. Like, come on over, let me talk to you. But actually, we read in Matthew's language, he began to rebuke him. That's an emotive word. It's the same word used by Matthew earlier for Jesus to the demon. It's a really strong and kind of like form of verbal violence. How dare you know? Then Peter said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, never, Lord. if you have the ESV, it reads, God forbid. The Greek here is more literally grace to you, which was shorthand for the expression, may God be gracious to you, which was a figure of speech in the time. Similar to any of your grandmas say like, Lord, have mercy, anything like that. (laughs) Or maybe like, you're super cool and have a cross earring and you're like 17. You're like, Lord, have mercy, whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, um, but any of, your, any of your grandmas say, like, mercy, or Lord have mercy, or, or goodness gracious, right? It's, it's very similar to that, but with a lot more umph. And the point is, for Simon, I mean, never, Lord, God forbid, great mercy, the idea is, is this is incomprehensible. Like, there is no way. God would never let that happen to the Messiah. No, not ever. Now, this is not just because Peter is full of faith or he's well-meaning or sincere. Peter has a vested interest in Jesus not suffering just like you and I have a vested interest in Jesus not suffering. I mean, do the math. If you are Peter or Simon and you follow Jesus as the Messiah into Jerusalem and he is crowned king of Israel and the world, oh, you're, you're sitting pretty. Like, you know, if you're lucky, you end up as chief of staff or secretary of state or El General or whatever it is. You know, you have a role to play in the government. But if you follow Jesus into Jerusalem as the Messiah and he is put to death by the empire, then you stand an even better chance of dying as well. As you can imagine, Peter's like, gut reaction is never, no, this, this will never happen to you. Jesus 23 turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So there's that. <laughs> The top of the list of things you don't wanna hear Jesus say to you (laughs) is get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Get behind me, meaning the proper place for an apprentice is behind the rabbi, not out in front. It's actually a a gracious way of saying, Simon, you're out of place, but also you're in my way. You stand between me and God's calling on my life. There are people who will stand between you and God's calling on your life. In particular, when that calling is to go the way of the cross, or what some have called the spirituality of dissent. People, well-meaning people, a family member, a parent, best friend, who have a vested interest in the status quo, don't go the way of the cross. That doesn't make sense. That's not what my therapist calls the gospel of upward mobility. (laughs) That is the gospel of the West. People have a vested interest. No, don't do that who stand between, that's the idea. He calls Simon Satan, not meaning that Simon is literally Satan, but more likely because Simon is playing the role of Satan, which is a Hebrew word. It's not a proper name in Hebrew. It's a title meaning the adversary. One scholar I read defined the Satan as, quote, any influence which seeks to make us turn back from the hard way. Have you ever been had the experience where, like, you're... I don't know, you're training for a half marathon or a marathon in the summer, or you're on a diet and you're just 39 and trying to lose weight or whatever, and like you're, you, you have a, a diet or a training regimen or something, and it's, it's hard work to stay on the path, and then your roommate or your spouse or your best friend just says, hey, I got you some little Big Burger. Here, you want some? No, I'm okay. Have you had the truffle fries at Little Big Burger with the Pilsner? Oh my gosh, right? What do you say? You say, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That is what you say, right there, all right? So it's that, and I don't mean that to make light of a very serious story, but it's that idea, but by a thousand, where, where somebody is literally between you and the spirituality of descent. Hence, Jesus' next line, you are a stumbling block to me. Now, two things here. One, this is a thousand years before the invention of the sidewalk, and it was common to trip over a stone. Remember, you're barefoot or you're in a sandal, and and then you would hurt not only your foot, but often your knee or your leg or your body in a pre-modern medicine world. Think of if you're a backpacker, you know, when you're a day or two away from civilization, you're really careful where you walk because you don't want to break an ankle or a leg. Right, Doug? You've been out in the middle of nowhere. You don't want a stumbling stone when you are outside out in the middle of nowhere. Two, there is a play on words here that we miss in the English translation. Remember, if you were here last week, we said that Peter, this is a bit confusing, In Greek, it's not a name like it is in English. It is a noun meaning rock. But notice that in both verse 22 and verse 23, Matthew, when he's writing the story, does not call Simon by his name. He calls him by his title, rock. Jesus turned and said to, and a better translation here is the rock, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Do you see the wordplay here? The rock became a stumbling block. The foundation of the temple, that is the church, became a trip hazard. There's a very important lesson here for all of us. One of the things I love about Jesus and the writers of the Bible in an age of PR and spin and digital marketing is how honest they are. And there is a realism in Jesus and the writers of Scripture and the Christian tradition about life, about the human condition, about sin, about the future, and a realism that we are wise to listen to that says, you know what? Rocks can become stumbling blocks. Simons can become Satan's. Nobel Peace Prize winners like John Vanier can become sexual predators. We should not be surprised to discover that leaders inside and outside of the church are human and have father wounds, and an ego and a shadow, or deal with addiction, I say that not to justify evil in leaders at all, or to sow distrust in followers, but to create a frame of reference that is based not only in biblical theology, but in realism, not in the cult of celebrity, or the cynicism of critical theory. Far from teaching the infallibility of the Pope, Jesus teaches that even his best followers and his most important leaders in the church can become Satan. That in fact, you can have leaders in the church who declare Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, who are 100% orthodox in theology. In fact, who are all about Jesus, who preach Jesus night and day, but if and when they or I, or we, refuse to go the way of the cross, to take on death to self, and to trust Jesus in a spirituality of descent, in that moment, or for that season, they, I, you, we, become more like Satan than like Jesus, more of a stumbling stone than a rock to stand on, Again, that's not to make you all angsty. It's to ground you and I in reality. And it's all because, next line from Jesus, 23, quote, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What a great line, huh? You don't think the way that God thinks. You don't feel the way that God feels. You don't see it the way that God sees it. I love Eugene Peterson's translation, quote, you have no idea how God works. (laughs) As blunt as that is, how often would Jesus, if we're honest, say that to us? You have no idea how God works. Or like more, just, you don't get it. right, and not, I don't think there's like anger or sarcasm here, or I don't think Jesus is frothing at the mouth. I think it's just uh, a sigh, I don't know, a chuckle. I don't know, but you don't get it. You don't see it the way God sees it. Your perspective, your bias, your lens, it's distorted by your own heart, your own family, your background, the New York Times or whatever, wherever you digest your view of the world from. you just you see the way that a human being sees, not God sees. I mean you don't see things from God's like 30,000-foot view. Which is why Jesus goes on 24, then. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple. Now, pause right there. That's really weird language. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple. Wait a minute, aren't we already your disciples? Right? A few things here. One is in the NIV, and I think it's also in the ESV, the way it's translated, whoever wants to be my disciple. More literally in Greek, it's whoever wants to come behind me. Um, That was a idiom or figure of speech in first century Hebrew um, for to become an apprentice or a disciple of a rabbi. You would come behind. You would literally follow a rabbi around. It was literal before it was a metaphor. But then also, again, it's a play on words because he said to Peter, get behind me. And now he's saying to Simon and the 12, whoever wants to be my disciple, meaning whoever wants to get behind me. But this is really odd language. He said to his disciples, whoever wants to become one of my disciples. And the idea is that we, as disciples of Jesus, we have to constantly monitor our heart and take a self inventory and and really pay attention to our position to Jesus. Are we behind him? the proper place for an apprentice of a rabbi, or are we out in front? Are we following Jesus? Or are we off on a vain attempt to get Jesus to follow us? We have to constantly, I have to do this every day, every week, to constantly monitor our heart and really our position to all of us are like Simon. All of us slip out of position. All of us get ahead. All of us let Satan into our heart from time to time. And Jesus has a very simple invitation. Notice, there's no coercion here. There's no control, it's just all invitation. Whoever wants, if you wanna come after me, you wanna come behind me, you wanna become an apprentice under me into life, three requirements, notice. Must, non-negotiable, one, deny themselves, two, take up their cross, and three, follow me. Just a short word on each. First off, deny yourself. What exactly does Jesus mean here? Well, I would argue that he means deny your self, not deny yourself. You're like, that's not remotely helpful at all. <laughs> what I mean by that is I don't think he's saying you need to deny your personality or your Myers-Briggs type or your introvert or extrovert preference or even your heart's desire. The New Testament writer Paul later writes about this idea of the self and we get a lot of clarity from Paul. In fact, he uses the language of the flesh. You remember that language from our series a while back on the flesh, which we defined as our base animalistic drives for self-gratification, in particular with sensuality, um, for sex and for food, but also the pleasure in general, as well as our inborn kind of instincts for survival, domination, and the need for control. It's what neurobiologists call our animal brain. That's another way to phrase it. This part of us that's bent in the wrong direction where all we care about is what I want and I want it right now, not love. Take a look at what Paul writes to the Galatians. Quote, as a famous line, "'I have been crucified with Christ. "'It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me.'" Now clearly, Paul is still breathing and writing a letter, so What part of Paul was crucified? Well, he goes on, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified what? The flesh with its passions and desires. And notice in context, the flesh passions and desires. He's not saying that all of your passion, like I'm really passionate for this, that, or the other, all of your desire, I really want this, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying your flesh is that bent animalistic part of you's passions and desires that are apart from the Spirit of God in you. That is what we are to crucify, what we are to put to death, what we are to let go of. To follow Jesus, requirement number one, we deny ourself or our flesh. Secondly, number two, take up your cross. Now, listen very carefully. This was helpful for me in my study this week. Don't read this as just another way of saying deny yourself. Scholars argue this word picture of take up your cross is literal before it is metaphorical. Meaning, again, it's easy for us to miss on the other side of the world in a post-Christian culture with human rights. The primary meaning of this in Jesus' day was literal. It was be willing to go public with your apprenticeship to me as a result, to go to death and martyrdom at the hands of the Roman Empire. Welcome to church. <laughs> and if you know church history, that is exactly what happened. All but 12, or all but one of the 12 were killed and many of them were crucified. Legend has it that Peter was crucified upside down. The secondary meeting is the more metaphorical kind of overtone of death to self. Now, few of, if any of us in the room will ever have to take up our cross in the literal sense, thank God. It is good to remember that is not true for millions of followers of Jesus around the world today, not just through church history, particularly throughout the Middle East and more and more in Asia. But most of us will have to at least take on a kind of social stigma and shame in our increasing honor-shame culture I know many of you who work in business or the corporate world that have had to turn down a job opportunity, at times a lucrative one, or miss out on a promotion. Or I, I've had I've had a recent, like high-level kind of Christian business people I know say whenever they hear this VP or this senior vice president or this CEO is a Christian, they just assume the person is a raging hypocrite. I've had others say it took me 10 years longer in my career to get to the same place because I refused to lie, cheat, and steal. So some of you um, have to, you carry that experience every, tomorrow morning when you show up for your job. But all of us will have to, at some level, take up the cross of death to self. Requirement number two. You're like, is there good news? Yes, just stay with me. Requirement number three is follow me or another way to say that is apprentice under me. And remember, this was literal before it was metaphorical. You would literally follow a rabbi around. You would become his student, join his school, apprentice under him. The goal was not just to like get the right answers on the multiple choice test of biblical theology. It was to become be with your rabbi and become like your rabbi. And in time, when you were ready, do what he did. And this in Jesus' mind, listen very carefully, is what makes Death to self and the cross more than worth it. Life with Jesus. Life in the presence of the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace, of self giving generative agape that we call the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Life with God in the kingdom is what makes death to self and the cross not only a possibility, but a genuine, joyful reality. And if you're skeptical of that, you're like, ah, that sounds like a PR pitch, Jesus is a master teacher, and he assumes your skepticism. And he goes on to name it. Next line, 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit there in the NIV, its soul, but it's the same Greek word you just used, life? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul or life? Now, the word here that is translated life in verse 25 and soul in verse 26, or some of your Bibles have self, it's the same word. In Greek, the word is psuche, it's where we get the word psyche and the noun psychology. It means more than just your life in the biological sense, but your life in the more kind of metaphysical or the deeper sense. And notice Jesus' syntax here. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Not should find it, not could find it. This is not a command. Not a rule to follow here. This is a statement about reality. I know I've said this a thousand times, but one of my favorite things about Jesus' teaching style is how often his teachings don't actually end with a command or a rule to follow, but rather with a statement about reality, about how life actually works. It's said that all therapy is helping people come to terms with reality, I would argue that all teaching is basically helping people not only come to terms with reality, but figure out how to live in congruence with reality, how to show up to the reality of God and other people and the world and our body and our gender and our sexuality and our desire and the hierarchy of desire in all of us that is contradictory at times and confused, how to show up to the mess in the beauty of life and live in congruence with reality, show up to reality in such a way that we flourish and we thrive, as opposed to live in dissonance with reality, rebellion against reality, confusion about reality in such a way that we wither and we suffer the inner angst of a non-integrated life. For Jesus, this is just the way life and the soul is. And also notice that for Jesus, not only is it a statement about reality, but it's far too binary and black and white for most of our tastes, right? Like notice for Jesus, there are two options. You have two options, so do I. Deny Jesus and follow yourself, or deny yourself and follow Jesus. The results are losing your life or saving your life. Now, this does not mean, those of you that have like some class in school of philosophy or logic, that Jesus is an immature, dualistic kind of black and white thinker. Jesus is actually not a dualistic thinker, but he's a brilliant teacher. And his method of teaching is, if you wanna nerd out on the academic stuff, it's called injunctive, where like it's designed to provoke you to ask your own questions that don't have really clear answers. And the nice thing about a black or white, either or binary kind of option A, option B, where we're like, what's the option C? There is none. You're for me or against me. Most of us are not for Jesus or against Jesus. It's we're like both throughout the day, (laughs) if we're honest, right? We're not like for deny myself or follow Jesus or deny Jesus and follow myself. We're like, yeah, we're kind of in the middle, right? But Jesus wants you and I to do the soul searching work to just provoke your heart in a gracious, kind way to ask, Where am I with Jesus? You remember this paradigm, any of you? Um, this is a year or two old from our teaching series on the world, the flesh and the devil. And we ended with this. I'm not going to reteach it was way too long the first time. I'm not going to reteach it. You're welcome to go back and listen to our podcast, but we just use this idea of how you know option a if we deny jesus and we follow ourselves just meaning we make our desire or more technical language is our disordered desires or our flesh the ultimate authority and driving motivation behind our life and our decision making and our relationships then we will end up not not could not should we will end up unsatisfied Like it does not satisfy, desire does not do that. Disintegrated, that's kind of philosophical or psychological language where we're just at tension with our own mind and our body, run by desire, where we just, we have like desire is all we have because we don't have God. So we have to get what we want to be happy. And in the end, in slavery to want because we have to do what we want to do, whether it's good for us or other people or not because we have to have this, that, or the other to be happy. Or option B is we deny ourselves or our flesh, that part of us, and we follow Jesus. And as a result, we end up, and again, this is on a continuum over a lifetime of apprenticeship to Jesus, but we end up more and more satisfied because we have Jesus. And ironically, at that point, everything else is bonus and we're more grateful and content and at peace than ever before, integrated in the soul. The soul in biblical theology is very different than Platonic philosophy. It's not like the cartoon bird that goes away when you die to heaven. It's the integration of your entire being, your mind, your body, your inner will or volition, your relationships, the integration into a harmonious center around God. We end up integrated more and more at peace with who we are, at peace with our story, at peace with our body, at peace with all that God has made us and not made us to be. More and more motivated by love, not run by I need to get what I want, instant gratification and give this to me, get that from you. But by agape, we participate more and more in the self-giving generative love of the Trinity and free from the domination of want where we no longer have to get what we want to be happy, and so I, again, ironically, we're more happy than ever. The people I know that are most joyful, most grateful, most enjoy like the mundanity of ordinary life are ironically the people who reject the be true to yourself, follow your heart, speak your truth propaganda. And that's what it is, propaganda, designed for the most part to sell you something and instead embrace the way of the cross and the spirituality of dissent and deaf to self, who ironically, or maybe not ironically, are the happiest people I know. Now, Jesus' point is very simple. If you deny Jesus and follow yourself, you will end up unsatisfied, disintegrated, run by desire and in slavery to want. This is what he means by lose your soul. If you've been around for any length of time, you, on guessing, have had somebody say to you, most of the time, not a 20-something, a 30 or 40-something, say something goes wrong, there's a tragedy, there's a failure of a career, breakup of a marriage, something, and say, I've lost everything, or I have nothing left to live for, or my life is over. And with great compassion for people living through a failure or a breakup or a tragedy, this is inevitably the end of the line when self is your God. On the other hand, if you deny yourself and you follow Jesus, again, more and more, you end up satisfied, integrated, motivated by love, and free from the domination of want. This is what Jesus means by save your life or for your soul. And again, this is not a command, it's a statement of reality. Not could, not should, will. Now, whether you trust Jesus and his mental maps to reality, or distrust, that choice is up to you. Whether you apprentice under him to live in congruence with reality or not, that is 100% up to you. I honor your freedom as does Jesus. But remember, this paradigm is literal before it is metaphorical. So lose your life, like the first meaning of that is, suffer martyrdom at the hands of the Roman Empire. The second meaning of that is like, not date that girl you really like because you're a follower of Jesus and she's not, right? And that's not to downplay that interpretation. It's to up the gravitas of Jesus' language. But that is nonsensical, like lose your life, literally die, heart stop beating in order to live. That doesn't make any sense, which is why Jesus goes on. Here's our last line, 27. Four, here's why. The son of man, Jesus' name for himself, is going to come in the future. This is all future orientation. In his father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Wow, this is fascinating. Reward, or the ESV has he will repay, which is far more ominous sounding. But both are correct. It is a positive or a negative word depending on where you stand in relation to Jesus. Most of us don't like, at least at first glance, the idea that Jesus is watching us. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Can you remember that? That's like Facebook creepy, right? Most of us don't like the idea that Jesus is watching us and will reward or repay us. But actually, this is a beautiful theology. It means that how we live matters. That our life is not in vain. That the universe is not cold, hard Darwinian materialism. We're not just an animal with time and chance on our side. It's not just death and then fade to black. That's not true. You are thinking as a human being thinks and not as God thinks, end quote. That there is creator, there is creation, There is material and there is immaterial. We are not just an animal. We are an image bearer of God. We carry design and purpose and meaning and intentionality in our body itself. There is a telos to the universe, to human history, to your soul and your part in human history. There is a a, a teleology, an end goal, a beautiful climax that we are moving toward in Jesus. And you have to factor in the future to make sense of the present in the way of Jesus. The only way to make the math add up on death to self and the cross is to factor in forever with Jesus in the kingdom. Again, in the Darwinian materialist view of the world, you die, fade to black, there's nothing else. In the Jesus view of the world, death is followed by resurrection. For a Darwinian materialist, death to self makes zero sense. Freud makes a bunch of sense. Minimize pain, maximize pleasure. There's your life philosophy, what's for brunch? Don't ask deep questions about life because it's too painful. In a Jesus view of the world, Makes perfect sense, because this is just the beginning of eternal life with Jesus forever. Now, thank you. Whoa. No, I don't don't need an applause. I don't, not that. Let's take a step back, just a few more thoughts before we call it a night. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, writing under the auspices of Nazi Germany and a German church that really had gone the way of compromise and complicity, really had lost the idea of death to self. In his most famous book that he called The Cost of Discipleship, he said this, quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When, meaning first thing for Jesus, step one on the spiritual journey is to embrace a lifestyle of death to self. That is how you enter the kingdom of God through The cross. Put another way, we will not get very far in our progress into the kingdom and our journey into spiritual formation until we make self denial a regular and joyful part of our life with Jesus. The longer that I follow Jesus, and I'm sure we could go around the room and tell stories and that I'm not alone, the more I realize that, man, everything comes back to the center of death to self with Jesus or whatever you want to call it. In the church tradition I came up in, we often called it surrender. Christian psychologists um, often call it yielding. That's my favorite language for it. The French mystics like Francois Fenelon called it detachment. Ignatius and the 17th century Spanish Jesuits called it by a Spanish word that's often translated indifference or can also be translated freedom. Whatever you want to call it, surrender, yielding, freedom, indifference, detachment, the cross, death to self, whatever you want to call it, it is central. It's right at the core of Christian spirituality and our life in the kingdom. There is no formula for spiritual formation, but if there was, I imagine it would sound something like live in the presence and yield. Just practice the presence of God. Turn in your mind and your inner heart a thousand times a day and face the Trinitarian community of love, receive the self-giving love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and in return, give back, just yield, let go, release, die to self, turn, and face God. But this is very hard to do, to let go of anything especially for those of us who grew up in the West. For years, honestly, I think I really misunderstood the word picture of death to self. I thought of like death to self and the cross as like this really active thing that I do, like kind of like willpower, like white knuckle it, like die to self, die to self, don't do what I wanna do, don't sin, don't look at the thing, don't whatever, die to self and like flex your abdomen muscle at the same time, right? (laughs) And I'm sure there's some truth in that, but man, You know, the more I think about it, the more I realize that death isn't really something you do. It's something that is done to you. It's more passive than it is active. It's more about letting go and letting be what is. Now, I've never died, so this is hypothetical for me. I'm not an expert on the subject. But my guess is it feels less like grasping for control and more like yielding up the illusion of control. This is why in the West, most like we're really bad at death and we're really bad at grief. Because in the West, we really wanna believe that we're in control. What was that study I quoted for you last week that the average American has 15% control over their life that they think they do? That's why we're all so anxious and upset and angry. We think we're in control when reality, we have a little bit of control. And with that comes agency, responsibility, take good care, budget, save, have a retirement account, great, (laughs) for 15% of your life. The other 85% is a whole other reality. But we really struggle to grieve because death, tragedy, loss, grief, major or minor, forces us to confront reality. And as T.S. Eliot once said, human beings can bear very little reality. It forces us to confront the reality that we are not anywhere close to as control, in control of our life as we think we are. And that's why grieving, you know, I've, I have some friends who are here just this last hour who are in my community who recently have been through a tragedy, a loss of a child. And I'm watching them grieve, and I want to say they're doing it really well, but... Grieving isn't something that you do well. You don't do good at grieving or bad at grieving. You just grieve or you don't grieve. There's no grade, A++, on your grieving this week. It's pass or fail. You either show up to your grief and your emotional pain, or you run away and live in denial of your grief and your emotional pain. And I'm watching them do such a good job, but I'm realizing, man, grieving is so hard for us in the West, death is so hard for us in the West, because it forces us, again, to confront the reality that we are not nearly as in control as we think we are. But what what if we're not actually in control at all? Or what if we just have control of 15%? Or what if control is, for the most part, an illusion? And what if yielding is the ultimate form of freedom and peace? I think of that line, um, I just came across it recently from Macbeth, security is mortal's chiefest enemy. Oh, it's almost like Shakespeare was smart or something, you know, (laughs) and what if that's true? And what if when we let go of the illusion of security, what if it's then that we are actually set free to live in joy and peace and self-giving love? Because people that are dead to self are unshakable in the world. All that to say, death to self, or whatever you wanna call it, it is how we enter the kingdom of Jesus. But, and this is very important as we near the end, it is also, listen, please listen to me, it is also how the Satan enters the mini kingdom of our own heart. When we accept Jesus' call and we take up our cross and we die to self, we enter into the kingdom. When we refuse to die to ourselves when we refuse to let go, when we grasp, when we deny Jesus, we let Satan into our mind and our body and the interiority of our being. We think that we're protecting our life to make us happy when in reality, the very life that we ache for and the joy are slipping through our fingers. Back to Paul's very famous line to end, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice that phrase at the end, not Christ has been crucified for me. He says that in other places, that's true. But here he writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I think Paul would say that Jesus did not die so that we don't have to, but to show us how to. Put another way, the cross isn't just something that Jesus did for us, it's also something that we do with him. Now, please hear me, that is not to question orthodoxy or substitutionary atonement at all. Don't email me. (laughs) There is an in our place dimension to Jesus' death that is very different from my death or from yours. But I think that Paul would say, the cross is not just a theory of atonement, it is a way of life. I know that Jesus would say that, how? Because he said it and we just read it. And it is a way of life that many of us, myself included, on a regular basis, avoid. And in doing so, we become Satan. We become the stumbling block. We let the enemy into our heart. It's easy to mock Simon, but we all do what he did. I read a story the other day or a while back about the Knights Templar and the Crusades. I have no idea of the historical veracity of this story. Um, but, and the story said that, they were baptized before they would go and crusade to the Holy Land, but when they were baptized, they were baptized in full like armor, like a knight, but they would hold their sword up over the water and it would not go under. As if to say, God, you can have all of me, but not this part, not my sword, not my violence, not my direct disobedience to Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and the early church tradition, not my quest for glory, not my definition of masculinity by European Middle Ages mindset, not that part. Everything else, yes, not that part. That's easy to laugh at. I have no idea if that story is true, but it's true. You know what I mean? It's easy to laugh at that, it's easy to mock that, it's easy to critique that, we all do that. I don't know what you would hold up over the waters of baptism, likely not a sword. If that's your thing, don't ever invite me to your house, please, that's terrifying. (laughs) I don't know what you would hold up. A wallet, a budget line item, a relationship, sexuality, an identity, a political opinion, a doctrine, an ethic, a decision, a you fill in the blank. For most of us, there's at least one or two or three or a running list of things that are still above the waters of baptism and as a result, outside the life of the kingdom. To take up your cross, is to let that go, to go under the waters of baptism and not to drown, but to come back out in a whole new kind of life. I don't know exactly how we do this. I know this. Um, Remember when Pete Gregg was here recently and he had that acronym for prayer? Anybody remember it? P-R-A-Y? Pause. Anybody remember? It's okay. It's not a test. Rejoice. Ask. You remember what the last one was? Yield. Yield. Yeah, you all remember that one. (laughs) Yield. Man, there's a lot. There's a lot in that. Often at the end, not often, pretty much every day, the end of my morning prayer time. It's hard to put this into words, but I'm guessing most of you have a very similar experience. I just kind of come to quiet, close my Bible. I often put my hands open in my lap, and I just. I don't know what I do, but I just have this inner moment where I just yield. I just turn myself over to God. Not my will, but yours be done. God let in, I receive the kingdom, and I let go of my kingdom. I don't know what that looks like for you, but that is the way of Jesus.